This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's a new year in uh, the prospect nerd circles in minor league baseball, like the two people who host this show every week as we welcome you inside the latest edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com, episode number 145. I'm Tyler Maughan, Sam Dykstra in New York City. New Top 100 is out from MLB Pipeline, and we are, we're ready to rock and roll with it, Sam. The, uh, it's like prospect Christmas for us. Yeah, Which I think is. we refer to like eight different days on the calendar as that every year. But <laughs> we this can is, have eight this is the first one. Yeah, why not? Yeah. We just have prospect Hanukkah, but it's spread out over the full year as yeah. opposed to just having it all grouped together. Yeah. Yeah, no, that works. That works. Yeah. Um, and we're going to dive in. We're going to dive full in. Full in? That didn't even make sense. To uh, the top 100 coming up here shortly. Um, but uh, welcome into this week's edition of the show before the show. From MILB.com, we're talking all things minor league baseball as we are just a couple of weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting on the major league side. Minor league guys are already um, at least milling around complexes in a lot of places in Florida and Arizona, and minor league camps get going in earnest in just about a month. And Major League Baseball's 2017 or 2018, rather, regular season um, is less than 70 days away now, and the minor leagues will follow very shortly thereafter. So get pumped. The theme of the episode today is that baseball season is coming up soon. Um, (laughs) Before we get into into three strikes thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the show before the show you can find us on itunes or at google play or on the stitcher app and we're at milb.com slash podcast and uh wherever you find us give us a rating and a review and a subscription and we would be so thrilled if it's five stars if not eh, just don't worry about it um so let's get started three strikes for this week's edition we picked three topics to discuss in the uh the world of minor league baseball and this week it is uh, really the one and only topic. There will be three, but the most important one, the new top 100 is here from MLB Pipeline for 2018. And the new top prospect in all of baseball going into the 2018 season, really no surprise, and I don't think he's going to be on this list for long, but Shohei Otani, the right-handed pitcher slash designated hitter slash outfielder. He's probably not going to see much, if any, time in the outfield in his uh, major league career. But um, Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels, of Anaheim is your new number one. Then it's Sam's man crush Ronald Acuna at number two of the Atlanta Braves. My man crush Vladimir Guerrero of the Toronto Blue Jays at number three. Uh, Josh Jackson's man crush Eloy Jimenez of the Chicago White Sox at number four. And Kelsey Hennigan told us forever that Glaber Torres was going to be the number one prospect in baseball going into 2018. He's number five, um, coming off of Tommy John surgery, obviously, last year with the injury, the freak weird injury sliding into home plate, but the uh, New York Yankees infield prospect is there. Victor Robles, the outfield prospect of the Washington Nationals, number six. Nick Senzel of the uh, Cincinnati Reds, the third baseman, is number seven. Fernando Tatis Jr., the shortstop prospect whose stock has skyrocketed over the last year plus in the San Diego Padres organization, is number eight. Forrest Whitley, the Houston Astros right-handed pitcher, is number nine. And Michael Kopech, the Chicago White Sox, right-handed pitching prospect is number 10 and we're not going to go through all 100 don't worry um (laughs) but sam your initial reaction to this otani 
that was kind of the obvious thing. It's almost like going into 2018, we look at everybody beyond him, uh, I think, in a little bit more detail. Although, all that being said, the AOS prospect um, preview is up from uh, from Sam on Toolshed, and there's a lot of really good stuff about Shohei Otani and that and the prospect projections for the American League West. But I don't think we're going to see him much, if at all, in the minor leagues. Um, your initial reactions, you know, Otani leads it off, but there's a lot to discuss, even just in that top 10, but the top 100 as a whole. Yeah, um, the fact that Otani here is here isn't that big of a surprise. Um, but kind of given who he is and all the potential he does have, I mean, you brought up the prospect projections piece I had this week. Steamer thinks he'll be like a four-win player on the mound this year and a one-and-a-half-win player just for his bat, uh, which is quite astonishing that he could be either one uh, right away. But the idea that this is actually still a debate, you know, Acuna being a toolsy outfielder, Vladimir Guerrero, he got an 80 on his hit tool. That's as high as you can get on a any particular tool. An 80 there, a 65 for his power on the 20 to 80 scale. Uh, you know, he could be an offensive monster. Any of those three, I think you could put as the number one prospect and still feel okay. Um, but the fact that Otani feels like generational talent and yet he's still part of a discussion, says something a lot about this class. Uh, to kind of break it down by organization, uh, the Braves, you know, once again, still a strong, uh, you know, prospect pool there. They they lead the way with eight top 100 prospects. The Padres and the White Sox come in, tied it for second with seven each. The Rays, Yankees, and Phillies have six, and the Reds have five. Um, you know, kind of not unexpected there in terms of who has the most talent at the top. Uh, the thing that kind of stuck out to me were, are two things that I want to talk about real quick is I think Pipeline does this in a way other places that rank maybe ESPN, Baseball America, Baseball Perspective, Fangraphs, whatever. Uh, they usually stick on guys a little bit longer. And by stick on guys, I mean, you know, Mickey Moniak, number one overall pick in the number in the 2016 draft. Uh, a lot of people were down on him last year. You know, he's super athletic, can play center field. Uh, really struggled offensively at Class A Lakewood, and there were a lot of reasons for that. Him just, you know, trying to adjust to a 140-game season, uh, not being able to catch up to minor league pitching yet. You know, there are a lot of reasons to be down on him, and Pipeline is down on him. I mean, he ended last year as the number 29 overall prospect. He's down to 88. I know a lot of other sites don't have him ranked at all, so I think that's interesting that he stuck around. Blake Rutherford, you know, went from the Yankees to the White Sox last year. He was another great talent coming out of high school in that 2016 first round uh he went from number 40 all the way back to number 99 again it's really surprising that he was ranked uh he didn't really show much power at all last year really had similar struggles to moniac but was not coming from as high a place to begin with uh so the fact that he sticks around at 99 is interesting riley pint who i know you know a lot about tyler uh you know put his fastball against anybody else in the minors you're going to be wowed no matter what he really struggled to throw strikes this year at Class A Asheville. Uh, he goes from number 55 to 100. Some real questions about whether he's ever going to be able to throw strikes. Uh, but, you know, MLB.com keeps him ranked in that top 100. We're going to continue to discuss him going up until the next, you know, rankings update in the middle of the year. And uh, Kevin Maiton, uh, you know, switched teams this offseason as a part of the Braves scandal. Uh, he ends up signing with the Angels. He was number 39 at 
the end of last year. Uh, he gets bumped down to number 87. Some questions about his athleticism. Uh, he's a shortstop, but he's probably not going to stick there. Even the bat wasn't as exciting as we thought it would be uh, playing at some short season levels last year. Um, but he's still not out of the discussion. He's, like I said, number 39 at the end of the year, now down to number 87. Uh, and he's part of a really interesting group now of Angels prospects. Otani at the top, obviously, but also Joe Adele and Jemai Jones get ranked. And now all of a sudden, the Angels, a team as early as last year, or as late as last year, we were talking about as one of the worst farm systems in the game. They now have four top 100 prospects. I think Brandon Marsh is kind of in that next level. Uh, he's at least in the discussion, could jump in there in the midseason if all goes well for him. Um, so that Angels system is a lot more interesting now. Uh, the Marlins system, who we'll talk about here in strike two, they have a couple of top 100 prospects again. Um, so, you know, there there is some, un, some expected stuff. Again, you know, Otani's certainly leading the way there. Um, but to see Pipeline still sticking with some names as well, uh, at least made my eyes, you know, it surprised me a little bit. Um, but, you know, these guys were just in their first season. They're just getting tastes. They still have the skills. The skills don't completely go away. Um, and we'll have to see how they live up to that, you know, first half of 2018. The um, the San Diego Padres are the leaders in this year's rankings in terms of prospect points, and MLB Pipeline ranks them um, as the, the top team via these criteria, the top – uh, prospect in baseball gets his team 100 points. The number two prospect gets his team 99, et cetera, et cetera. The Padres have seven players in the top 100. They have 422 prospect, 423 prospect points. The Atlanta Braves actually have the most players. They have eight in the top 100. They have 407 prospect points. But a couple of teams that I want to just point out, the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, who we have talked about for years. I mean, we've been doing this podcast. This is our fourth season. For four years, we've been talking about how brutal that team's system has been. The Angels have four top 100 prospects now. And, yeah, Otani's kind of a different case. But, you know, Sam touched on some of those guys. Um, that's a really interesting turnaround. On the flip side of that coin, if you would have said five years ago, not even five. You would have said three years ago that the Chicago Cubs would have zero top 100 prospects and that another team with them with zero top 100 prospects would be the Kansas City Royals. I don't think anybody would have believed you. Those are two of the three teams along the New York Mets who have zero top 100 prospects in this year's rankings, which I find really interesting. Hey, it worked for both of them. They both won a World Series. That's the the whole name of the game. Uh, the Mets, not so much. Um, but it's, it's really interesting to see the way the identities of some of these systems have flipped. Uh, the other thing... That stands out to me. The Detroit Tigers are somewhat on the rebound in their system. They've got four guys in the top 100 now, 174 prospect points, which is kind of middle of the road. But the Boston Red Sox, you look at Dave Dombrowski. When Dave Dombrowski was the, the head of the Tigers organization, when he was the GM in Detroit, not a whole lot of prospect talent to speak of. That's kind of the same case in Boston. Now they've got two top 100 guys, 38 prospect points. Um, so the identities of these systems are changing a lot, and they're changing quickly. Um it's just kind of interesting to see the way these organizations morph themselves in what feels like such a short span of time. If you're a Cubs fan, you're a Royals fan, you don't care. You got your World Series. Everything's great. But the the fact that a couple, three years ago, those teams were the gem franchises and the way they were building their systems. And now, not that they're devoid of talent, but they don't have that elite level talent. That's something entirely new. Yeah, the Royals specifically are, are worrisome now. 
um, you know, you mentioned right. that, yeah, they got that World Series. And, and for, you know, being a small market club like the Royals, I know going up for me, the Royals were always the team that were at the bottom of the AL Central no matter what. So for them to climb up, get that ring, um, you know, compete as well as they did for a couple of years is good. And that's what you want. Um, but, you know, this was a big offseason for them. We all knew that coming in. You know, Lorenzo Cain has already signed elsewhere. Alcides Escobar is signed back, but is anybody really excited about that? He's all of a sudden become one of the worst hitting shortstops in the game. Uh, Eric Hosmer still on the line, still open. You know, maybe he comes back if they offer him enough. Maybe he goes to somewhere like San Diego or wherever else. You know, that still remains to be seen. Um, but knowing that some of the biggest contributors from those World Series teams were going elsewhere. If you're Kansas City, you would hope, well, at least there's somebody coming up that we can get excited about. And, you know, there are some names there for sure. Uh, Nicky Lopez, I think, turned a lot of heads at the Arizona Fall League. Nick Prado, their their first round pick, who we talked to a couple of weeks ago. I think people are high on him, just not top 100 high on him. Um, so there are reasons to be excited about that system. But at a time when it's clear that the major league product is going to take a nosedive, you would hope that there would be reason. You would hope that there would be hope in the minor leagues, and it's just not there for for the Kansas City system. Strike two this week, Sam. Unless there's anything that I'm missing on top 100, because I don't want to move on from it too quickly because it's such a big topic. I mean, I don't really have too much else um, about it. I just want to note this. You know, we we talk about pipeline all the time uh, because you know they're kind of like our sister site and. That's those are the rankings we use. Um, but looking at some of the major ones that have come out so far between ESPN, Baseball America, uh, I, I kind of made a chart just to see where guys have ranked and where they compare and all that. And as much as we talk about a top 100 as if it's a tacked on thing, as if everybody's talking about the same top 100 prospects, uh, that's obviously not going to be true. Amongst those three sites, 136 different players got ranked amongst the three different top 100s. Um, so even when you think like you're choosing from a pool of maybe 125, it goes even deeper than that. Uh, and you know, there are going to be some other sites that are going to come out with their top 100s coming out. Uh, we do farm system rankings. We'll be doing those the end of February. Uh, so the end of this month, that's just beginning when you guys hear this. Um, but, and I'll have a big pick and then Sam will change it and tell me that I'm crazy. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but to, to think that as if there's ever an industry consensus on this kind of stuff, right? This, this kind of just debunks that, and that's what that's what makes it fun. I mean, they're all talking points. They're, yeah, they're guys who, you know, they're all going to be major league regulars probably. It's but what type of major league regular do you prefer? Um, and that's when we really get into some of the bigger debates, which we'll have one of our own uh, coming up here in a little bit, I think. Strike two, then we'll uh, we'll move on to um, some movement of top prospects in uh, in a couple of organizations. The Miami Marlins last week. This was like right after we recorded and posted uh, last week's edition of the show, of course. But last Thursday, on the twenty fifth, Miami Marlins finally dropped the latest shoe to fall in that organization, sending outfielder Christian Yelich to the Milwaukee Brewers in exchange for a boatload of prospects. Number 13 overall prospect in the 2017 rankings, uh, Lewis Brinson, who is now number 27. He's dropped back a little bit. Uh, but Lewis Brinson is one of the guys headed to the uh, Miami Marlins along with, from the Brewers, infielder Isan Diaz, already the second trade of his career, second trade in two years for Isan Diaz, who was initially signed by the Arizona Diamondbacks. Outfielder Monte Harrison, who was formerly a very, very highly regarded prospect in that organization, was a second-round pick back in 2014. 
Still just 22 years old. I think there's a lot of time for Monte Harrison to get himself sorted out. And last year put together a really good season for the first time in his minor league career. Um, and right-handed pitcher Jordan Yamamoto, those guys all moving over to the Marlins in exchange for Christian Yelich. That's a big-time deal. Um, Lewis Brinson, second trade for him as well. Second trade just a matter of months for Lewis Brinson, which is kind of crazy. That is a, a system now. The Marlins system goes from being – relatively bleak to now being something that you look at and go, okay, the Stanton deal was a lot more about money. This is certainly bringing in a lot of talent. That's something I think if you're a Marlins fan, you really wanted to see. Yeah. This is a trade that I think if you are a Marlins fan, you're saying, where was this all along? Like this is all we wanted was some big names to actually get excited about. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, I think some of the arms they got from the Yankees and the Cardinals, they're big arms. uh, And they talked about that. You know, at the winter meetings, when I talked to some of the Marlins execs, they said, listen, we targeted pitching. We we know pitching is something we need help with. That's what they went after. And Jorge Guzman from the Yankees, who has, as they claim, the best fastball or the highest velocity fastball in all of baseball. Uh, and Sandy Alcantara, who you know has a plus fastball of his own. Um, and so maybe they address some of those issues. They are obviously trying to clear money. Um, you know, Yelich was much more affordable. Uh, which makes him a much more valuable trade chip, and that's how you're able to get four actually notable prospects coming back. And two two of them are top 100. I mean, Brinson now is number 27 in MLB.com's latest update. Harrison actually jumps up into that discussion. He's now number 71. Uh, Brinson looks like he will now be you know, the starting center fielder for the Marlins on opening day, uh, which is notable, A, because... You know, he got a couple games last year with the Brewers. Brewers are trying to contend. They wanted all hands on deck. They wanted Brinson up. Um, so he does have some Major League time already. This will not be a shock to him to see Major League Baseball. Um, but also, the Marlins have no starting outfielders left. You know, Giancarlo Stanton is gone. Uh, Marcelo Zuna is gone. Christian Yelich has now been traded to the Brewers. Um, so Brinson kind of has to be the anchor of a, of a brand new outfield in Miami. Uh, and by all accounts, he loves that idea you know he's a florida native he talked about how growing up he used to watch juan pierre juan pierre was like his favorite player uh when he was young he actually already got to work out with juan pierre and said that was one of the coolest experiences of his baseball career so far um so you know he he seems like somebody who's willing to take on this whole rebuild and be the star of that and he's certainly capable of it i mean brinson uh you know when healthy can be a plus power hitter He's got, you know, plus wheels. He can get plenty of steals. He hit 13 homers and had 11 steals last year in 76 games at AAA Colorado Springs. Uh, he can definitely stick in center field. He's got a pretty decent arm to work out there as well. Uh, one of the most athletic players you'll ever see. And uh, he's one of those guys, you know, I've seen him a couple times. Um, when you just stand next to him, he looks like a baseball player. He's six foot three, 195. Uh, add in that he's got some speed to go with that size. It's a pretty amazing package. The only worry about him is staying healthy. He had a hamstring issue last year um, that cut his season short pretty early, he- made him not contribute to the Brewers down the, the stretch, even after rosters expanded. Um, so, you know, is he going to be able to play 162 games uh, for the Marlins next year when they, they are going to need help in that outfield? We'll have to see. Uh, but you mentioned Monte Harrison. I'm really excited to see what he can do uh, in another season or another really healthy season. 
Uh, you know, he battled some injuries the first couple of years of his career, only played 74 games in 2015, 80 games in 2016, went all the way up to 122 this year and uh, really took off hitting 272, 350, 481 with 21 homers and 27 steals between Class A Wisconsin and Class A Advanced Carolina. I talked to him at the beginning of last year. He said it was a big deal just to finally get out of the Midwest League. Um, you know, he had been there three straight years and had really struggled with, against Class A pitching. Turned that around last year. He could be another center fielder. Um, I think they might move him to right, not because of his range issues, but because he has a better arm than Brinson. Uh, he could certainly profile out there as well. The idea of seeing them together in an outfield long term is an exciting prospect uh, for Marlins fans. It's not going to be the three-headed monster that Ozuna, Stanton, and Yelich necessarily were, but these are very toolsy guys who have high ceilings. Uh, Diaz I would is a step down from those guys necessarily. Uh, he's got lots of power for a middle infielder, 20-plus uh, homer potential easily. Um, you know, he's played some time at shortstop, played some time at second base, probably a second baseman going forward. Not going to necessarily have a high average because of his approach, but he does get a lot of power out of that. And uh, he can handle himself defensively. This is not a Willie Calhoun we're talking about here in terms of the glove. Um, so, yeah, this Marlins system got a lot more interesting with this trade. Um, it's the type of trade we love to sink our teeth into from a prospect standpoint. Um you know, maybe another one is down the line. JT Realmuto uh, could be traded. There's some rumors about Washington getting involved. They have some interesting prospects. I don't think they're going to trade Victor Robles, uh, but Juan Soto, Carter Keboom, Eric Fetty, uh, also guys who are fringe top 100 or have been top 100 in the past. Um, maybe the Washington Nationals are willing to deal those guys. Uh, they, that would just add to Miami's talent pool and, and help them climb a little bit some of the rankings that we'll be coming out with. Um, but yeah, after some worries about what the organizational approach was in some of these trades, um, I think the Marlins kind of set out what to do what we all thought they should have done from the beginning in getting high-end talent back in this trade with the Brewers. Uh, Christian Yelich posted to Instagram a photo of him, Marcelo Zuna, and Giancarlo Stanton after that trade. And I just thought it was kind of interesting. He, um, through his his comment on it, said, you know, this is the way we grew up in our organization. Um, I didn't always say or do the right things. But what I thought was really interesting was he addressed – the fans, the city of Miami and his teammates, but didn't say anything about the Marlins as an organization, which, um, you know, it was kind of similar to what we heard from Giancarlo Stanton in his introductory press conference in New York. But what really stood out to me, there was a comment on that Instagram post and we don't, you know, talk about the big league side of things um, that much, but this just stood out to me. Um, and it said, quote, one of the best outfields to ever disassemble crazy. And that comment was from Bryce Harper. Uh, so the, the rest of the baseball world watching what's going on in Miami has been a really fascinating aspect to this. And I mean, they brought in a lot of talent. If you're a, a, a Marlins fan, this trade, the Ozuna trade, I think is something that you feel pretty good about the, the trade of Stanton. You bring back some high risk, high reward talent. Um, but certainly this is one that at least you can think to yourself, like, 
all right, I, I can breathe easy with this deal because there's a big package that comes back in return for Christian Yelich. So at least there's some brightness in an offseason that has felt really dark otherwise in a lot of ways uh, for the Marlins. Strike three this week, Sam. We got a new class of Hall of Famers in uh, Major League Baseball who will be headed to Cooperstown in 2018. And uh, you got a chance to check out the, the press conference in which they were introduced in New York after being selected. Um, your reaction to this and, and kind of walk us through the, the minor league lives of these guys as they climbed through uh, through the farm systems. Yeah, so uh, the class, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, this year was Vladimir Guerrero, Trevor Hoffman, Chipper Jones, and Jim Tomei. Uh, so that's a pretty solid class of four guys. A good big class, all probably all probably deserving. They're obviously deserving Hall of Famers. Uh, they all received at least 75% of the vote um, from the BBWAA uh, to make it this far. A uh, little disappointing to see Edgar Martinez fall short, and some of the other guys fall short as well. But you know they'll get the, their chances next year, and I, I think Edgar will get in probably next year based on where he finished this year. Um, but it, the paths for some of these guys are really interesting. Chipper Jones was you know the number one overall pick uh, when he entered the league. Uh, Jim Tomei was kind of a you know a, an infielder, not a first baseman. Um, you know, who the Indians kind of took a flyer on in, in one of the later rounds. Uh, Trevor Hoffman was actually drafted as a shortstop, uh, got some time as third base as well, realized he really couldn't hit a lick, moved to the mound, ended up throwing 95 miles an hour. Uh, and, you know, as we say, the rest is history. And Vlad Guerrero signed out of the Dominican Republic. Uh, there was a story, I think it was on Bleacher Report a couple of years ago, that he showed up to his tryout uh, with the Blue Jays with two mismatched shoes um, and ended up, you know, running incredibly well despite wearing mismatched shoes. Uh, ended up tweaking his hamstring, so he only got one at bat in the tryout, but the scout saw enough to sign him and all this stuff. Uh, during the press conference, Vladdy said that the mismatched shoes part wasn't true, um, but there was a direct quote from the scout who was there, so somebody's getting their stories crossed. Anyways, uh, all these guys coming from such diverse backgrounds that all end up in Cooperstown is really, really interesting. Uh, I want to touch on Guerrero because I had a story on that for Toolshed last week. Um, obviously, with Vladimir Guerrero, the first thing we think about now with him, at least from our points of view and our jobs, is he is the father of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the new number three overall prospect. Uh, and Vladimir Guerrero coming up, you know, he hit double A. I think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to, if he doesn't at least start at double A New Hampshire this year, he's going to spend a good portion of his season there. Um, so what is it going to be like? You know, wh what can we learn from Guerrero Sr. Uh, during his trip to double A Harrisburg that we can maybe use to look at Guerrero Jr.? And I actually got in touch for that story with Charlie Montoyo, uh, who a lot of you know from his time as a manager in the, the minor league system of the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he was at AAA Durham for years, uh, for the longest time, eventually moved up to become their third base coach. Now he's their bench coach, just got promoted this offseason after some flirtations with other major league managerial jobs. Uh, so I talked to him because he was his final year as a player was on that double A Harrisburg team with Vladimir Guerrero. Uh, he kind of served as the veteran presence around. He said he played a lot of first base. Uh, one of the things he loved doing or one of the most eye-opening things he did uh, on that team was he would play first base and the ball would get hit to right and he would have to sprint to first base because there was always the chance of Vladimir Guerrero trying to throw the guy out from first base from right field at first base. 
Uh, he always had that arm. We saw that arm over as many years in the major leagues. Um, but he said, you know, by the time Vladdy Sr. got to double A, he really seemed settled in. You know, he knew a lot of the guys. He had been around those guys for a while. He had been in the minor league system for at least one year. Uh, he knew what the deal was. And he was able to kind of brush off some of the hype because, you know, by May and June, Felipe Alou, then the manager of the Montreal Expos, was fielding questions about when is this Guerrero kid going to come up? Uh, and no doubt that's going to be the case with the Blue Jays major league staff this year. If Guerrero Jr. hits well April, May, June, questions are going to come. When is he ready? When are we going to see him? Um, you know, is he going to move to first base? What happens? Uh, is he blocked by Josh Donaldson? All that kind of stuff. Um, but Guerrero Sr., he's Charlie Montoyo said, was really able to put that aside. He really focused on the game, and it helped that he was surrounded you know, by a lot of talent. Jose Vidro was on that team. Um, there were a couple other guys. I think the amount of guys who eventually played in the majors was around 20 or so on that Harrisburg team. Uh, he was really able to just find his comfort level at A because of that experience. And I think that mirrors what we're going to see from Guerrero Jr. this year. You know, he has another top 100 name in Bo Bichette alongside him. And it seems like in all their interactions with each other, everything we've heard, <clears throat> they are pretty good buddy-buddy uh, coming up together. Going to the Futures game last year, going from Class A Lansing to Class A Advanced to Needham at the same time. Um, to have that guy who is so talented and similar age, you know, they were age 18 and 19 last year. They'll be 19 and 20 for most of 2018. Uh, to have that person to lean on is a big deal, as it was for senior or probably be for junior. Um, so go check out that story. I think it's pretty revealing on what what we can see, not only from just because they share the same name and, um, you know, share what was exciting potential for senior and what is exciting potential for junior, um, but just what it's like for players coming from another country, what happens when they need to adjust, you know, to a whole nother area, a whole new language, a whole new everything. Uh, while trying to play baseball and while trying to play baseball at a high level. Um, so that story ran last Friday. I, I encourage everybody to go check it out. Yeah, it's a great one. It's up on the site right now at MILB.com. And um, the uh, Hall of Fame induction ceremony coming up this summer in Cooperstown. I've never been to one, but I would very much – very much like to go. I've been to Cooperstown once when I was a kid. Um, it was there like the weekend before Hall of Fame uh, induction weekend. But that's one. It's definitely on the list. Things I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I always told myself that I was going to go when Pedro got inducted. And it just didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, um, that was kind of like the Michael Jordan moment for me. And I, and I got yeah. it. But, um, yeah, what, I would highly encourage people to go this year. I feel like this year is going to be – It's a great class. It's a great class, and it's a colorful class. And I mean that. Yeah. So guys coming from all over the place, you know, Atlanta, Montreal slash Anaheim, San Diego, uh, Cleveland slash Philadelphia slash Chicago slash Minnesota. Uh, and then, you know, Alan Trammell and Jack Morris, uh, both Detroit guys, and Jack Morris moved around in his career as well. It seems like there's just going to be a whole bunch of fan bases all coming together for for one really fun weekend. So I would encourage people to uh, go this this year if you can. Three strikes wrapping up on this week's edition of the show before the show. Coming up, we are uh, continuing to talk top 100. Sam and I are going to dive into where uh, we think maybe there could be some changes, some guys moving around in the top 100. We'll give you our very own top 10s for the 2017 into 2018 season ranking changes, and uh, that's coming up after the break.
Top 100 is at MLBpipeline.com for the 2018 season. And Sam and I thought um, for this week, as Sam noted, you know, combined across the industry and the uh, the prospect lists that have been released already from Baseball America and ESPN and Baseball Prospectus and Pipeline, additionally 136 combined players on the top 100 lists across all of those uh, various rankings. And so it's not a, a hard and fast rule as to where these guys go. So we figured we would give you our own top 10s going into the 2018 season. And um, what we're going to do for this is we're going to remove Shohei Otani from this equation because, yes, technically Shohei Otani comes in as a prospect because he has not played in the major leagues. But Shohei Otani has also played five professional seasons at the second best major league level on the entire planet in Nippon Professional Baseball in Japan. So we're just going to set Otani aside because barring anything extremely unforeseen, I don't think we're ever going to see him in the minor leagues. If he goes into spring training and is just god-awful for some reason, I guess maybe there's a chance he gets some time at Salt Lake to start the year. I don't think it's really likely. So we're going to remove Otani from the equation. So beyond that, we're going to rank our top 10. How do you want to do this? You want to just go through your through your 10, or should we trade off? Should we snake it one-on-one? Um, I'd say we each give our top 10s, and then okay. uh, we will find out what's different amongst them. In-show producing, ten. that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, and we'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll spit fire after that about why you're wrong and why I'm right. Okay, okay, okay. We'll see, Sam. We'll, we'll see fire away. So that's the thing with these prospect lists. Like we can debate them all now, and then we'll find out in a, a long time from now whether we True. were actually right or not. True. That is fair. Um, all right, you go first. Yeah. All right. Oh, you want me to go first? Okay. Yeah, I want. All right. Yeah. All right. You want the wrong list to go first is what you're saying. No, I want the people to have the best information second. Ah, I gotcha. Um, well, I'm going with your boy. I'm going with your boy at number one, Ronald Acuna. Um, I just think the way his 2017 season went, he really separated himself um, in that conversation. Starts at, at Class A Advanced Florida. He's a double A Mississippi. He's a triple A Gwinnett. He gets better at every single level. The OPS improved drastically at every single level. Um, and his field tool, you talk about how good he is as a hitter. His field tool and his arm tool are both 60 grade on the 20 to 80 scouting scale just does everything well so I've got Acuna number one um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at number two on my list uh, what he was able to do offensively last year between Lansing and Dunedin um, and I think the power is still really to come along he's got an 80 grade hit tool I mean that's that's all world all pro- that's his dad and maybe a little bit better that's how ridiculous Vlad Guerrero Jr. is at the plate um, that tandem is going to be fun to watch and we might be talking about the other part of that tandem here in a little bit um Eloy Menez I think is is the third best prospect in baseball and a guy who going into last year would not have surprised me if he came out of 2017 as the number one and he didn't take a hit at all necessarily but there was the trade um you know he's tested at the double a level and fares very well but it's a limited sample size in Birmingham uh in the White Sox organization but I got Eloy at number three number four Victor Robles I really like what he did at the end of the season he got some time at double a Harrisburg then he made the jump up to the big leagues I just really like Victor Robles and his profile so he's my number four. My number five, I love, and as has become known on this podcast, I love Fernando Tatis Jr. Um, I think the fact that he does a lot of things very well rather than any one thing that stands out exceedingly great among his game I think is really going to benefit him. Um, and the fact that it seems like he's really been – not penciled into, but I think to an extent somewhat penciled into that spot 
in the Padres organization where you've got another guy in that system um, who for a while I think was kind of viewed as, well, maybe this is the, the guy who you look at going forward as your shortstop of the future. But Luis Arias, I think it's been established that Tatis has the higher ceiling at short. So I think you look at him right now and Arias is the guy to his left playing second base is your future tandem in the Padres organization. I really like Fernando Tatis Jr. So he's my number five. Nick Senzel, the Cincinnati Reds. I'm going to be really interested to see where he lands as a player. We know he's going into big league camp this year. He's going to play a bunch of different positions, corner outfield spots, maybe at first, maybe at second. He played shortstop in college. He can kind of go anywhere, um, but he hits regardless, no matter where he's been. He's hit. So Nick Sensel's my number six. Um, Glaber Torres is my number seven. I just think that injury weirds me out a little bit. It's not in his throwing arm, so it shouldn't be much of a factor. But the way guys respond to major surgeries, and Glaber Torres, if you did not remember, tore the ulnar collateral ligament, the UCL, in his left elbow, his non-throwing arm, on a slide in a home plate last year after 32 games at AA Trenton and then 23 games at AAA Scranton-Wilkesbury. The numbers were great there, but... Coming off a major injury, I bump him down the list because you just don't know how guys are going to respond. Um, so he comes in as my number seven. My number eight, I love Michael Kopech. Um, I thought last year was really going to be a year in which Michael Kopech took a step back, and I think it was the opposite of that. I think he took a huge step forward. The command is still a question mark to an extent for him. He walked 60 and 119 in the third innings last year with A Birmingham. He also struck out 155 and 119 in the third, and he limited opponents to a 184 average against in double a went up to triple a made three starts in charlotte there the numbers were pretty darn good as well 17 k's and 15 innings he walked five there and opponents batted better at 263 against him but the whip was only 1.33 um and that's a guy who went into that level at 21 years old so michael kopech i really like um he's my number eight my number nine it's actually flip-flop from where pipeline has him forrest whitley is my number nine the right-hander in the houston astros organization who is another guy who does a lot well and he does have some exceedingly good components to his game the fastball and the curveball are terrific for him I just think Kopech if he's able to harness that fastball which is also 80 grade um, not much in baseball can touch a guy who can throw a triple digits fastball and command it that's going to be the next step for Michael Kopech seeing if he can harness that Forrest Whitley I think is a little bit more of a complete package um, but a younger guy he turned 20 after the regular season last year on September 15th of, uh, of 2017 and then my last guy my guy who's bumped into the top 10 at least on my list with Shohei Otani not included. Um, I jumped Bo Bichette a few spots. He came in at number 14 on the pipeline rankings, but I'm putting Bo Bichette in there as the the number 10 prospect on my list. Again, I just love what he did wire to wire. Combined between two levels, Class A and Class A Advanced, at 19 years old, he hit 362, 423, 565. It's a 988 OPS, 14 homers. I think the power is still to come along with him a little bit. Um, the hit tool is outstanding. There are questions as to where he's going to be going forward defensively. That's his weakest graded tool, but I really like Boba Shett. And the thing I like about Boba Shett which is also something I like about Vlad Guerrero Jr. Those two guys are going to push each other each step of the way. And I love that in the minor leagues. When you've got two prospects who are really good, they're in similar levels in their development. They get to challenge each other going up the ladder together. I really like that. So those are my those are my 10. All right. Well, you're wrong. but um, Well, thank you, Sam. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do, you th- do you think Callis and uh, Mayo and Rosenbaum <laughs> – Did they do this? Yeah. They're just like, no, you're wrong. No, absolutely not. Everything yeah, about you was so. incorrect. 
they're they're yeah, probably no, much they're, nicer and actually yeah. debated while we're. I think they're throat. way more mature than we are. Yeah, we're they're we're embracing debate using the hashtag. I think they probably actually embrace <laughs> debate. But anyway, um, so my top ten, I'll, I'll go through them a little quicker just because Tyler hit a lot of points that I'm going to talk about anyway. Um, I have Acuna at one, um, just because, as Tyler mentioned, he's all sorts of tooled up. Uh, trying to find a below average tool with him is almost impossible. Uh, you don't find those guys very often. Uh, there's just so few question marks with him. Uh, and as much as I like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who is my number two, you know, Vlad could end up moving from third base to first base uh, just because, you know, he, he's still not, or he's still maturing, could still grow, and he is already kind of big. Uh, you know, so there are defensive questions with him that we just don't have with Acuna. Uh, Acuna has all the tools to be, you know, a potential five-six win player in the major leagues. Guerrero is going to have to hit a lot to make that happen, uh, given what his defensive future looks like. He certainly can do that. You know, I don't want to doubt him. Uh, you know, we've seen Miguel Cabrera be a very, very valuable player despite being limited defensively. Uh, I'm not putting a Miguel Cabrera comp on. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. just saying, you know, his ceiling, that might be his ceiling. It's not a realistic ceiling, but that could be his ceiling. Uh, and that's why he ends up at number two. Number three, again, kind of for the same reason, I have Victor Robles. I think Victor Robles huh. is very toolsy, and I love tools. I love diversity of tools. I love being able to see a good hit tool along with being a very, very strong center fielder. Uh, there's no doubt that he's going to stick there. His arm, I think, uh, impresses a lot of people given his size. I mean, he's six foot, 185 pounds. He's not huge, you know, like the guys who we normally think have a, a really good arm, but it's plus plus. And the only real question mark for him is power. And even that was on the uptick last year. He hit 10 home runs, uh, had eight triples, 37 doubles. You know, it's really gap to gap power now, but he's still growing into that. Uh, you know, I just love what he could be. And so do the Nats. I mean, there's probably a reason why, or that's probably a reason why, they're not willing to let go of him for JT Realmuto, who could instantly make the Nationals better this year uh, behind the plate. You know, the Nationals have to look at a future potentially without Bryce Harper. Robles could be their superstar of the future. He has everything there to make that happen. Uh, and just because, you know, maybe he loses a tick of speed. Okay, but he's still a really good hitter. Uh, maybe the arm's not as, you know, uniquely special as we think. Okay, but he could still cover a lot of ground. That's what I kind of like him as a little bit more of a prospect than some of the other guys we're about to talk to next or talk about next. Uh, I have Glaber Torres at number four. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, Tyler, the Tommy John surgery. It is on his non-throwing arm, so that is less worrisome for me than it would be otherwise. Uh, but it still, you know, he's – Hasn't played as much last year as we would have liked to him, it, to have seen him do. Uh, he only played 55 games. But everywhere he's played, he has hit. He's done exceedingly well, and he's done it at a young age. I mean, he still only turned 21 in December. Um, so he's probably heading back to AAA Scranton this year. Um, you know, they want to get him reps at second base. The Yankees have a hole there. They want him to just at least show that he's ready and healthy and all that kind of stuff. He'll be up fairly quickly. And, you know, Didi Gregorius has got shortstop on lock right now for the Yankees. But Torres could be a shortstop of the future for them. 
Um, you know, he he's moving to second, but only because Didi Gregorius is coming off the season of his life last year. In another system, Torres is probably a shortstop. Him finding shortstops of his caliber with his offensive capabilities is really, really difficult. So I, I still give him a boost, even if he does move to second. I still give him a boost because he could move over to shortstop and the Yankees wouldn't miss a bit, beat, at least defensively. At number five, I have Eloy Jimenez. Um, you know, for all the me- reasons you mentioned, Tyler, uh, you know, I might not like him necessarily as much as you, but it's just a tid on, tidbit underneath. Uh, the power, you know, we've seen him literally hit light towers in home run derbies. I mean, it's it's the stuff of legend. Um, I think his hit tool is even better than we, you might expect for somebody of his size, six foot four, 205 pounds. Uh, you know, he was a 312 hitter everywhere he went last year over 89 games that's that's not easy to find to find somebody who is a 300 hitter and capable of hitting 30 35 home runs a year um what i don't necessarily like with him compared to somebody like robles or torres is that he doesn't have a lot of speed uh he's looking like potentially a left fielder going forward which is fine um but he's not going to be an asset defensively in the way that we can find you know, Acuna or Robles or Torres to be assets at multiple places or in, in multiple aspects of the game. With Jimenez, it's only going to be with the bat, I think, uh, in the same way with Vladimir Guerrero. And I think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is a better hitter overall or will become one eventually. Um, but, you know, that's not to say I don't like Jimenez. Obviously, I think he's the number five overall prospect in baseball right now. Number six, I have Forrest Whitley. Uh, really, really like what he did last year and the way he responded to climbing three levels, you know, basically as a teenager. But why I have him as my top ranking pitching prospect is because he has four pitches. You know, that's my kind of theme here is just diversity. Kopech is a really, really hard thrower. He has a good slider and iffy changeup. Whitley could have four above average pitches, at least two plus pitches, and he has good control. Uh, you know, and he, he's probably still growing. Uh, you know, he's six foot seven, uh, weighs 195 pounds. I know he actually lost weight, lost weight back in the day. Um, and, you know, some of the places I think had him at like six, seven, 250. If you ever look at him, he's definitely not that. Uh, he's certainly lost weight since high school. Um, but now he's going to kind of pack it on again, could even add more velocity as he matures. The starter set here is just wonderful. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of projecting that forward. Top of the rotation starters are come with multiple pitches. They don't just throw hard. They don't just have a really good secondary. They can come at you with three or four good pitches. And that's what Willie has right now. Um, so that's why I have him as my top pitching prospect coming in at number six. Uh, number seven, Nick Senzel. Really intrigued by what they're going to try to do with him defensively this year. Um, but that's not what really factors in here. It factors in the hit tool. The fact that he was able to hit, um, you know, not only in the Florida State League, but at double A Pensacola in the Southern League, ending up with a 321 average at both spots, 14 homers, 14 steals. I think he's a better runner than I was expecting coming out of college. Uh, showed really good gap to gap power, ended up with 40 doubles. Uh, I think those home runs will only increase the more time he gets in the in the minors and majors um really a lot to like there i think he could end up being one of the best overall hitters we have in the game 
you know, once he gets to Cincinnati and the idea of him sharing the same infield with Joey Votto uh, should make a lot of Cincinnati fans very excited. Number eight, I have Fernando Tatis Jr. Um, really like the tools with him. Again, he's, he's a shortstop. The reason why I don't have him ranked as highly as Glaber Torres is because he just hasn't done it at the higher levels yet. Um, you know, he did reach double A San Antonio at the end of the year. That was kind of a glorified cup of coffee. Um, tore up class A Fort Wayne. That's great. Um, but I, I want to see him carry, you know, his Fort Wayne numbers elsewhere. And I don't think he's as overall a great hitter. Uh, you know, the power will certainly play. I do like the speed. MLB pipeline has him at an average runner, you know, as he, as he'll grow older, but 32 steals, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, now I'm going to really be really interested to see what he does go with that going forward. Um, just, I'm not quite as sure that the bat is going to carry as well as I am with Torres or, you know, some of the other infielders we've talked about so far. Um, so he comes in at number eight for me. Number nine is somebody we have not talked about yet. Uh, and he's going to be my number two pitching prospect is Brent Honeywell. And, and what I like with Honeywell course the first thing that's probably popping into your mind is the screwball and the screwball is, is a really good pitch not just because of its it's an oddity but i remember at the futures game last year you know guys who have been prospects they've been all over the minors a lot of them have been at the upper levels of the minors they all wanted to see that pitch it, it it's an amazing pitch that really throws guys off and to throw it as well as he does is kind of amazing but also his fastball is a plus pitch his slider is pretty good. His changeup is really good. And he has really impressive control. He only walked 35 batters last year over 136 and two-thirds innings. And I, I'm a big fan of control guys um, just because I feel like that's something that can carry. If you can throw in a strike zone, you can. the strike zone isn't going to change all that much. You know, The umpires will change. But if you can hit your spots, that's something you, you can do at every level. Um, so for him to already be doing that at AAA Durham and a little bit at AA Montgomery last year is really enticing for me. Uh, and that's what gives him the nod over the guy I have at number 10, who is Michael Kopech. Again, you know, love watching Kopech pitch. Anytime you, there's a chance a guy could throw 100 miles an hour, he's going to be a must-watch pitcher. It's just I, I've kind of fallen into this trap before with Tyler Glass now. Not to say that they're similar pitchers. I think Glasnow has a lot of moving parts in his delivery that make it tough to to replicate, and that makes it tougher for him to hit his spots. But Kopech has really struggled with his control in the past, and you know, as much as you want to say he'll eventually figure out the mechanics of it, it's just not a bet I'm willing to make as much as I am with Honeywell and seeing his skills translate to the upper upper levels and the majors eventually when probably both of them hit there in 2018. Um, so again, I, I really like Kopech. This is not a group of 10 that I'm choosing from. This is all the prospect them really, um, you know, that, that fastball is really special. The slider is really, really good. It's a swing and miss pitch, uh, to have two as special pitches as he does. That's why he's at number 10 and not necessarily number 15. Um, but it's the control issues that put him below Whitley and, uh, Honeywell for me. So that's my top 10. What are your biggest issues with that, Tyler? Well, you're wrong. This is my uh, that's the biggest, my biggest one. Issue. Yeah. No, I mean, I honestly, um, I think that's what stands out most about this this top ten is you can make the case for any of these guys in any of these spots because I think really one through fifteen this year is is pretty well on the same level. There's some drop off, I think, after that top ten. 
um, on the pipeline rankings, but not a lot. I mean, we've seen years where we've had this discussion where it's like really outside of the top five guys are on an entirely different level. Um, I don't think that's the case this year. I think really you can make these arguments for anybody. I do think um, I, I like how bold you went with your Victor Robles um, ranking, the fact that he's so high up. Um, but I, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any big qualms, Sam. I think, uh, I think you're, you're pretty well right on with it. The Honeywell thing, I'm really going to be interested to see how that progresses when he makes it to the major leagues, because that really has been like not an urban legend, but it's been like the way that that pitch has defined him in his minor league career. Um, he's so hungry to be able to prove that he can do it at the major league level. And the thing that's so funny about Brent Honeywell, he was a 2014 pick. I mean, Brent Honeywell is still just 22 years old. He'll be 23 at the start of the season, but it feels like we've been talking about him forever, which is kind of crazy. Um, I think this is really the year where we see what he's going to be made of at the major league level. Um, and that that's exciting. I think it'll be really cool to see a different approach to an arsenal at the major league level. We don't really see that very often outside of knuckleballers who try something different, but the screwball is something entirely different than what we see on a regular basis. So I think that's really cool. Um, but aside from the fact that you're wrong on everything, I don't have that many qualms. <laughs> yeah. Th- um, we should address some of the other guys who are kind of also rands, at least on my list, I'm sure for you as well. Uh, Francisco Mejia is number 11 on MLB pipelines. Yeah. Um, the reason I kind of leave him off is I'm really intrigued by what they're going to do with him positionally. He got some time at third base last year, uh, especially in the Arizona fall league. Uh, some questions about what he is going to be as a catcher. If they decide that's what he's going to be full time. Um, I know he's got a really strong arm that's going to work well defensively. What is he going to be like as a framer? Uh, you know, we're we're leaning a lot more on that now and how we evaluate catchers. That's why I kind of put him behind Kopech. Uh, I'm a big fan of Walker Bueller, who came in at number 13. Um, the only thing with him is, you know, he, as good as he was last year, didn't really pitch deep into games yet. Um, what is it going to be like with him when he really is leaned on for six or seven innings at a time? Um Bo Bichette is number 14. I know he was in your top 10, Tyler. The reason why he's not with me is, you know, as, as good a hitter as he was last year, if you watch him, he has a very violent swing. And I know everybody I've talked to in the Blue Jays say, listen, we're not going to touch it because it, it has worked incredibly well for him. Um, but I, I have some questions about what's going to happen with all those moving parts once he starts facing double A arms. So those questions kind of drag him down. Yeah. Um, those are the top three guys I would say you might be screaming at your device now and saying, what about that person? And that's just why they're outside the top 10. But, you know, they'd easily make a top 15, a top 20. And, and you know, it's not a knock on any of these guys to right. rank somebody above them. It's more praise for the person that we do put as high as we do. Yeah, it's, um, you know, these are rankings of like your favorite elite sports cars like everybody on this list is good everybody in the top 100 is good everybody in the top 10 to the top 15 is extremely good so it's not a knock to have been left off of the top 10 um because you're right there with the rest of them so um this is going to be interesting because i think that the separation is not quite as drastic as what we've seen i think there is a a noticeable level of difference between the very best guys on this list and that second tier but i don't think it's quite as drastic as what we've seen in seasons past um so it's uh you know and that's due i think in large part to the fact that the the astros have you know just dudes doing it at the major league level now rather than dominating (laughs) every single thing in the minor league so you know that tends to help with the the parody of it all 
One would think. One would think. <laughs> so those are our uh, our own personal lists, and you can tweet at us um, if we're crazy, if you think we're right, if you think we're wrong, um, and your own top tens if you would like. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykes or MILB. I am at Tyler Ron. You can get in touch with the show as always, podcast at MILB.com. Coming up, we are going to head uh, to the business of baseball, and one Benjamin Hill who will join us to discuss um, some Super Bowl-related stuff as well as uh, a new look for a team in the Appalachian League and a whole lot more. Ben Hill coming up next. Well, the uh, the minor league season being nearly upon us, we had uh, a bunch of rebrands, some redesigns, all that kind of stuff, but not done as we head into the 2018 season. We bring in Benjamin Hill to tackle um, what I would imagine is the last new identity that we will find for the uh, the 2018 campaign. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Sam. Hi, hi Ben. He did it again. He called me Tyler. <laughs> no, I was saying hi to Tyler. He's, you know. I also feel like a parakeet in those just... situations. <laughs> I'm just repeating. You're just repeating whatever was just said. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. (laughs) Getting us back on track. um, Back on track. We uh, never say never when it comes to new logos. We have seen them as late as mid-March. And while I am sometimes privy to insider information regarding these delicate matters, I do not know for sure whether we will see anything else uh, in this offseason. But we did see something last week, which was on one hand known for quite some time. Uh, the Greenville Astros of the Appalachian League, um, after this, the 2017 season, the Houston Astros organization decided to pull their team out of the Appy League. This created a vacancy in the Appy League uh, at Pioneer Park, where the Greenville Astros played. It's on the campus of Tusculum College. It's the newest ballpark in the Appy League, and um, therefore a pretty desirable location for teams who might want to have a rookie-level affiliate in the Appalachian League. And uh, the organization that swooped in was the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, That was announced uh, months ago with not much information. The the Reds uh, tweeted it uh, that, hey, we have a new affiliate in Greenville. But we didn't hear much for months after that until last week when the uh, Cincinnati Reds offseason caravan ran through Greenville. And during that caravan stop, they took the opportunity to say, yes, hey, for sure, we're having a team here in Greenville in the Appy League. That team is the Greenville Reds, and here's our logo. Um, you know, there are 10 teams in the Appy League. They all carry the name of the parent club. The Greenville Reds are no exception. The logos adhere closely to the Cincinnati Reds uh, aesthetic, where the C, the Cincinnati Reds C is a G, and uh, the Cincinnati Reds uh, anthropomorphic mustachioed baseball is wearing a coonskin cap, and that's because Davy Crockett is uh, grew up in the greater uh, Greenville surroundings. So that's a Davy Crockett reference. So now we have finally have some uh, images to go with the Greenville Reds, and you can check out that story on the site at milb.com, the official website of minor league baseball. You know what stands out to me about this is, yeah, it's, it's obviously evocative of the Red Sea, um, the Reds see not the red sea but it also to me looks very much like the green bay packers slash georgia Bulldogs slash grambling state g as well which it's not the exact same i mean if you overlaid them the g's are different and there's the wishbone c tail on this greenville logo but it's it's like an instantly recognizable logo that you've never seen before which is kind of weird yeah and it seemed to do really well uh, at least in the court of public opinion on social media um, you know, keeping it simple and clean, but obviously having a few tweaks to make it specifically Greenville and not just a carbon copy of the parent club. I mean, does the Appy League really have any wacky logos? I mean, they're not really known for that regardless anyway. No, not at all. I mean, in the Appy League, as I said, all 10 teams are, one, named after the parent club. 
Two, you know, these are small operations. A lot of the teams only have one full-time employee year-round. The Bristol Pirates are entirely volunteer-run. So this is a league, short season, small markets, small front office staffs, where you don't really see uh, much at all in the way of, um, you know, wacky minor league promotions or one-night-only rebranding or theme jerseys. Uh, Johnson City, uh, the Cardinals of Johnson City are probably the team that does that the most in the league but no this is a league where you don't see uh much of the bells and whistles that are inherent to much of minor league baseball so the purists love it if you want baseball as it was quote meant to be then go to the appalachian league i love i love it too with your baseball purists with their anthropomorphic baseball mascots oh yeah there's not baseball purists love mustachioed anthropomorphic baseballs i mean they're they're cool with some levels of absurdity as long as said absurdity was established decades ago to the point <laughs> where it now feels normal and you don't think about how absurd it is that's true uh, by the way in case anybody weird like me is wondering um among the packers georgia and grambling state the packers owned the trademark first so since 1961 they said in 1964 they gave georgia and grambling permission to use that logo and something similar so uh the the greenville reds logo obviously not the same but similar and maybe it brought it up in your uh your weird brain like my weird brain um and so the the greenville reds will be in for the 2018 season formerly the greenville astros of course we talked about their move out of the appy league earlier on this offseason so greenville that's the the reason why that team has been slotted in as a reds affiliate for 2018 um we are uh, we're getting close to the start of the season and we're having start you times. keep saying that <laughs> well because it translates into start times for games around the minor leagues will be changing in charlotte Games will be starting at 7.04 p.m., and that is because, as Ben alerts us at bensbiz.mlblogs.com, 7.04 is the area code of Charlotte, um, and Ben uncovered that's not the only team around baseball that uh, that actually does that for, for start times for games. What else do you discover? Right. Well, you know, 80% of my work these days is asking questions on Twitter and hoping enough people respond to give <laughs> me uh, uh, hashtag content. And, um, you know... I, I thought this was interesting, the, the Charlotte Knights uh, starting games at 7.04. Obviously, that's a fortuitous area code for start times. Um, one, that it's a number that actually corresponds to our system of keeping time, and uh, it's not a inherently absurd uh, start time. So, uh, you know, good idea from the Charlotte Knights. Um, a lot of people pointed out that, hey, didn't the White Sox do something like this? Um, yes, they did In starting in 2006, I believe. Uh, they started games at 7.11. That was not an area code reference but rather because they had a partnership with 7-Eleven convenience stores. Um, but I put out the question on Twitter, like, you know, every team should do this, kind of joking around. Uh, some teams said, hey, we do do something like this. Um, Stockton in the 209 starts at Sunday games at 209. Um, the Kane County Cougars in the 630 area code start their night games at 630. Um, the Hillsborough Hops start at 503 on Saturdays and uh, so on and so forth. And, of course, I got a lot of responses from people saying, uh, you know, we're not going to start our games at 978 or what have you. And I think those people are just not thinking outside the box. Yeah, that's just not dedicated, really, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Oh, Nashville Sounds. They start their Sunday games at 615, Nashville being in the 615. So, so that's on the blog. There's lots of great blog posts on bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Uh, that's my blog. And uh, you can read that post and many other posts including uh, some minor league team food identities I'd like to see, a roundup of defunct teams that this year's class of Hall, Hall of Fame uh, inductees played for, defunct minor league teams, that is, and so on and so forth ad nauseum. 
ad nauseum, ad nauseum, ad nauseating, ad nauseum, ad nauseum. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, moving over to what you have coming up for the site this week, uh, you've got a story on how the Super Bowl, which is coming up on Sunday. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. We don't know how it ends. Uh, crosses over with minor league baseball, and there appears to be more crossover than any of us would have thought, really. Right. Well, you know, we are still as much as Tyler wants to. Uh, Really hammer home the idea that the season is season's starting. coming he, up soon. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know we still have a couple months left, and it's it's been still a little bit of a dead time for me, uh, uh, content-wise, material-wise, uh, art-wise. I, I call what I do art. Um, so I was thinking, hey, it's Super Bowl week. I'll write a story on uh, minor league baseball players who went on to play in Super Bowls and spent way too much time uh, researching it. And you can check out that article on the site uh, on Thursday, the same day this podcast will. Uh, I lead off the story with uh, a mention of Sam Brown, or not Sam Brown, Tom Brown. Tom Brown. Who's the one mixing up names now, Ben? Hey, I know. It's easy to do. It's easy How to do. How the turntables have turned. Tom Brown, who uh, actually started his baseball career, bam, in the major leagues with the Washington Senators, um, didn't play well, was demoted to the York White Roses of the Eastern League, played there in 63 and 64, was drafted by the Packers, and then went on to uh, play on the Vince Lombardi-led Packers team that won three consecutive, and he was a part of three consecutive uh, championship-winning teams, with those last two championships being Super Bowls one and two. So uh, you, have to, you can go all the way back to the first Super Bowl, uh, to see players with professional baseball connections. So uh, my story rounds up a few others. Uh, I find a, you know, it's been written about before, but hey, this is a roundup story. Um, John Lynch, you know, who's now the San Francisco 49ers general manager, you know, also played for many years uh, primarily with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, won a Super Bowl there in Tampa Bay. He has a very uh, cool little trivia question attached to his name. And that is that he threw out the first, you know, he was drafted as a pitcher by the Florida Marlins and went on to throw out the first pitch in Florida Marlins history as a member of the 1990 organizational history, not the Florida Marlins themselves. In the history of the organization of the Florida Marlins, now the Miami Marlins, John Lynch threw out the first pitch as a member of the Erie Sailors in 1992, the New York Penn League Erie Sailors. So uh, tell your friends. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And John Elway's in that story. And uh, uh, somebody with MILB.com wrote a long story about John Elway's minor league career. Wouldn't um, be the one based out of Denver, would it? Yeah. I think I it might have been Josh. It might have been Josh, <laughs> Josh Jackson. Yeah. I think it was Josh. Uh, well, he always writes our good stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, it was a long form story. And speaking of, uh, of the Super Bowl, which, um, as you noted, is also coming up. Not quite like the baseball season, which, as we all know, is coming up soon. Um, but uh, we've got a, a bet, apparently, between uh, my two fearless co-hosts on the show before the show podcast. Benjamin Hill, who is a Philadelphia area native, and, uh, and Samuel Dykstra, who is uh, a native of, you know, the success-starved regions of New England in sports these days. Um, but you're going with uh, with the Super Bowl bet. What what What's the what are the stakes here? Well, first of all, yeah, I, I grew up in Ambler, Pennsylvania, Montgomery County, about uh, you know uh, about fifteen twenty miles north of the city proper. Wonderful place to grow up, and of course, I grew up an Eagles fan. Uh, primarily, uh, Randall Cunningham was my all-time favorite. I loved when he completed passes to Fred Barnett, and I loved when Vi Sikahema returned punts. Those are my favorite Eagles memories. Uh, anyway, Sam is from I don't know. Uh, Swamp I was going to say, am I, am I going to be able to just ramble off Quincy names Mass. of the Patriots? 
Yeah, where are you from, Sam? Swamp Scott? Not Swamp. I'm from Palmer, Massachusetts, which is in Western Mass, outside Springfield, about Sam halfway. Sam is actually Tommy from Quincy. He is the uh, he is the Drew McGarry foil of of New England sports fans. Listen, no, this Sam's a, a good long one. time to beat out my accent. Okay. <laughs> actually, I never had an accent. I I can't do my normal Boston sports fan impression right now because it just all involves vulgarity, as you know. That's so, fine. It's just nothing That's but profanity. Fine. So anyway. I, I, I accept your hate. It's fine. I, I feed off your hate. Um, Let it flow through you. Yeah, I grew up a Pats fan in the 90s, so I grew up with Drew Bloodsoe and Curtis Martin and Ben Coates and the early Adam Vinatieri years and then the good Adam Vinatieri years and then, you know, have lived through the Tom Brady era from beginning to end. Uh, hopefully not end yet. but <laughs> It's already over. Yeah, it's already over. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I'm a Pats fan. Ben's an Eagles fan. Our two teams happen to be playing on Sunday, so we have to do something for this podcast as a sort of bet for it. So what we're going to do is we're going to write um, whoever t- whoever's team loses the Super Bowl will have to read a uh, soliloquy written by the uh, fan of the winning team on the air next week on this podcast. Okay. So you'll About eat- the winning team city. Yeah, and how great it is. So yeah. you'll either hear me singing the praises of Boston – or you'll hear Sam singing the praises of Philadelphia, and perhaps more specifically the greater Philadelphia area, and perhaps most specifically Ambler, PA, 215 <laughs> area code, 19002 zip code. Or you may be talking about uh, all six states of New England and singing all of their praises individually as well. So we'll figure something out. Yeah, we will. Stay tuned. Such a cop-out to name yourselves after an entire geographical region. I'm sorry, Colorado. That's a state. That's one state, Sam. It's a big state. <laughs> Benjamin Hill is on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz. The blog is Ben'sBiz.mlblogs.com, and uh, there is yeah a football game this weekend, which holds no stakes greater than the bet between our own Sam Dykstra and Ben Hill, which uh, you can follow the game. I think it's televised. Um, and uh, but just make sure that the result, the most important thing coming out of the result, is who has to read uh, this tribute next week on the show before the show. It's gonna be big. It's gonna be huge. Ambler, Pennsylvania. Palmer, Massachusetts, I guess. Baseball season's coming up. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. We are getting set to uh, start planning spring training trips. Have you done anything as far as getting ready for for dates or for when you're going to go or any any of that? I have not. The only thing I know I have to be back for is uh, I'm doing a half marathon on March 18th. Oh, excuse uh, me. Yeah, no. Humble brag. Yep, just throwing that one out there. <laughs> uh, but no, otherwise, I, th- I usually go. Um, I think I'm going to be going from the sixth to the sixteenth, something like that, this year. Going okay. back to Florida, so I have to. Yeah, start- you go a little bit of a, a more extended stretch than Josh and I do. Josh and I go to the Phoenix area. Sam goes to to Florida. Sam's the Grapefruit League. We got the Cactus League. But Josh and I, we go for a shorter span of time. So there's two of us. We can cover a little bit more. But you get to go to Florida for a, a decent amount of time, which is good because it's not nearly as easy to get from place to place in the Grapefruit League as it is in the Cactus League. Don't don't I know it? Uh, I'm always yeah, jealous if of I have you guys who are just like, you. yeah, I'm going to go to White Sox camp now, and then I think I'm going to go to Indians after that one. I don't know. We'll see. That um, is the absolute best thing about the Cactus League is you can just kind of like, if something doesn't work out in one place, you can just go to another camp within a half hour's drive. It's fantastic. It's yeah. Great. Meanwhile, Sorry, I've had mornings where I have to wake up at 5 o'clock and drive from Tampa to St. Lucie <laughs> and pass by Yeehaw Junction, which is an amazing crossroad 
and yeah. of which I'm going to base a novel someday. So yeah, I that. think you uh, did. We talk to you from Yeehaw Junction last year. No, or I think maybe I, a couple years ago. No, or maybe you just brought it up. I brought it up. I'm sure. Okay. I, okay. I can never stop talking about Yeehaw Junction. I'm, I'm it back. seems like a place that would be in Arizona, but it's not. Of the two spring training destinations, we do not have a Yeehaw Junction. At least in the Phoenix area. I don't know. Maybe there's one in Arizona somewhere. Maybe it sounds Arizona's, like something out of Wyoming more than Central yeah, Florida true. too. Um, well, part of the reason we bring that up, um, Josh and I, I believe are going to be in the Phoenix area from Sunday, the 18th ish to Sunday, the 25th ish, those that week, that third week. And the reason we bring this up, not, I don't think any other major league team has this, but the Milwaukee Brewers have a Twitter account for their player development department specifically. And it's at Brewers PD on Twitter. Their most recent photo, if you go to twitter.com slash brewerspd, the most recent photo that they posted, it's like four tweets back, is the Brewers 2018 minor league spring training schedule. No other teams that I know of do this, and very few other teams publicize their minor league schedules really in any way. You can get them, kind of have to contact the team. If you're in the media, sometimes they'll give you an advanced schedule of where teams are going to be. But it gives you an idea of how the spring training schedule is broken down for minor league teams. So the first couple weeks, the first 10 to 14 days of spring training when minor league prospects are in camp, um, the teams are kind of fleshed out. You figure out where guys are going to be for the most part, and you will assign them to one of four rosters. There's a triple-A roster, double-A roster, an advanced-A roster, and a full-season class-A roster, or high-A, low-A, depending on how you want to call it. And four teams will play games basically every day there are what they call camp days once or twice a week um, but for the last two and a half weeks really of spring training the minor league teams play games two teams will stay at home at the spring training facility for that team and two will go on the road so for example the Brewers will open their 2018 minor league schedule on the 16th, and all four teams play the same four affiliates of one other team. So the Brewers will be playing the Angels on Friday the 16th. The AAA and AA Brewers teams, so the quote-unquote Colorado Springs and Biloxi rosters, will be on the road in Tempe to play at the Angels facility, and the high A and low A Brewers teams, Carolina and Wisconsin, will be at home in Maryvale to take on the Angels teams that come in. So that's Friday. Saturday, it's Colorado. Triple A and Double A are at home in Maryville. High A and Low A will be on the road at Salt River Fields, a talking stick. Sunday, it's Seattle. Monday, it's the Dodgers. Tuesday, it's the D backs. Wednesday, it's a camp day. Thursday, the Mariners. Friday, the Padres. So it kind of gives you an idea of how these are separated out and the way that schedule works. And by and large, it's the exact same for everybody else. Um, you'll see players move from one roster to another at times. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where those guys are going to be starting the season anyway. You could see a guy playing on the AAA roster who's not going to start above high A. Um, it's just kind of to test guys in various situations based on positional need, based on who you want to see getting at bats, that type of stuff. But it just gives you a concept of where these players are going to be and when. Unfortunately, and I tweeted this out on the day the Brewers posted it I wish every team in Major League Baseball had one of these accounts or at least publicize that stuff a little bit more openly um it's not you know of the the recent prospect focused generation I think it would be um much appreciated by baseball fans across the country especially the ones that go to spring training um so maybe we'll see that more and more here in uh, in coming seasons but it's really cool so again it's at Brewers PD on Twitter you can find it kind of gives you a concept of what spring training looks like from the minor league perspective at least on the schedule side for games yeah and I know uh the only other team I've seen do this during my time 
going across the minors uh, or going across spring training, at least on a minor league side is uh, the pirates have at pirate city. So there's, you know, the minor league complex, which is pirate city. And then the major league team, you know, works out and plays in, in downtown Bradenton is essentially. Um, but if you go to pirate city, you know, they have four fields around and they have, all these guides who are handing out the minor league schedule. And it's very easy to plan if you're a Pirates fan, uh, who's going to be where and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, we we try to get as much information. When we're passing along this stuff, we'll pass along to you guys. You know, we'll add the hashtag. Hopefully you can find it. Um, but the fact that this stuff is getting finalized makes spring feel all the more. They're all the sooner, I guess. Baseball season's coming up, Sam. Yeah, baseball season's coming up, as we like to say over and over on on this over over. episode of the podcast, for sure. I don't know if we publicized that on this week's edition of the show, <laughs> but it is. Um, so that'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, you can get in touch again, podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, MILB. And I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. And uh, until next week, uh, start counting down the days. The day you get this, it will be February. You have made it through the last month of the offseason without Major League and Minor League Baseball action. Uh, for the 2017-2018 offseason. So pat yourself on the back and get excited. Pitchers and catchers report in just a couple of weeks, and we will talk to you coming up next week.